The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Colossians 1.28 is where we'll be today. Uh, I'm going to preach a sermon, and uh, I've been influenced in this sermon uh, by this book. It's a book called Gaining by Losing uh, from J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is a pastor up in um, the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. And a great book. I would recommend that to you. Uh, deals a whole lot with missions and the church and uh, just the story of how there at the Summit Church, God has called hundreds of people out of that church. And, and they had to go through this sort of mindset to release those to God. And that in so doing, God doing that work in them, God has grown their church uh, exponentially, both spiritually as well as numerically, as they've been willing to say, God, these are not our resources, they're yours. Do whatever you want. And a uh, hard thing to do, but, but I would commend that book to you. Well, let me ask a question uh, this morning. If you were to light a stick of dynamite and throw that stick of dynamite into the air, um, and that stick of dynamite explodes, was that stick of dynamite successful? Well, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it was successful. It's going to make a big boom and probably going to turn some heads. Maybe for a few miles, you'll hear this boom. People will look up and, and turn. But three minutes after the explosion, what evidence is there that that dynamite was there? Take that same stick of dynamite and bore a hole into the side of a rock face and stick that dynamite deep into that rock face and light that fuse and run away. And when that dynamite explodes, there's a success that is altogether different. Whereas the first dynamite exploded and there was noise, now there's a hole where once there was simply a rock face. And that's what I believe God wants for us God wants us to stop putting so many resources, I believe, into the big, noisy explosion, and that we would be more strategic with what he's called us to do. We're in a series right now um, called uh, Reboot, and, uh, and we're looking today at... Um, we're looking today at real purpose. Excuse me, I'm preaching from a new Bible this morning, and it's having trouble staying open. And I know that's driving my wife crazy, and so until I explain that to her, um, I won't be able to go on. So hopefully that'll work. But anyway, real, real purpose is, is where we are. God has called us, I believe, to penetrate the darkness around us, to take the experience explosiveness of the gospel beyond these walls into our homes and into our neighborhoods, into our jobs, uh, into even the nations, and that we might, by the power of the Spirit, bore holes into those rock faces and that we might set the gospel off and see God do a work in our community and beyond. This is what we've been called to. So today, I, I want to just ask you to turn here to Colossians chapter 1, and if I had to choose what would be a life verse for me as a pastor, Colossians 1.28 would probably be it. Not real big on life verses, but this is one that I keep coming back to, and so today I want us to look at Colossians 1, 
verses 24 through 29. So follow along as I read this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I ask you just to join me in prayer before we really look at this text. Let's pray together. Lord, we've already come to you in prayer more than once today. But God, the reality is we can't pray enough. Lord, we are desperate. We are desperate to know you and for that knowledge of you to transform us. God, we love you, but we don't love you the way we wish we would. So God, today I pray that you'd take your word and God, that you would shape our hearts, strip sin away from us, and Lord, give us faith to believe and to follow where you would lead. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Colossians 1.28 is sort of the central verse, I think, of this passage. And he starts out with these three little words and he says, him we proclaim. And if you're looking for what the real purpose of any believer and the real purpose of this church, it would be this, him we proclaim. We proclaim Christ. The context of of verse 28, though, is spelled out for us in the verses leading up to this. In verse 24, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up the afflictions lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is his church. Paul here is not saying that there was something deficient in Christ's suffering. He's not saying that, you know, Christ took this thing of atonement so far, but he didn't quite accomplish it all. So I'm, I'm coming as sort of the man off the bench, and I'm coming into the game to finish this thing out. It's not what Paul's saying at all. That would contradict the message of Colossians. It would, it would really contradict the message of all of the Bible. What Christ did to die for our sins, to live that righteous life and to die for our sins has fully paid for our atonement. Paul's not saying that he's making up something deficient. What he's saying is that Christ died, was raised from the dead and went back to be with the Father and those that follow Christ, for the, the, the price of following Christ will sometimes require suffering. In fact, if you, if you remember when Saul was, Paul was Saul and he was knocked off of his horse, blinded by Christ, and led to uh, Damascus, and then had Ananias come to visit him, God spoke to Ananias and said, no, go pray with him because he's my chosen servant and I need to show him how much he will suffer for my name. 
Paul's not saying there's something deficient in Christ. He's saying, at the cost of following him, I will gladly suffer whatever it takes in order to proclaim him. Well, what sufferings is Paul referring to here? I mean, Paul never evangelized in this town, in Colossae. He never, he never was, was there at this point. He, he, he didn't preach there. These are not his converts. So what is he talking about when he says, I rejoice in the sufferings for your sake? Well, the rest of Paul's writings really give us the clue. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, Paul writes there, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. And he goes on and he, he says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And he describes the suffering. But I want you to note that Colossae here is in Asia. And had Paul not been willing to suffer for the gospel, to follow Christ, to proclaim him in Asia, even though these were not the direct converts of Paul's work, there would be no church in Colossae had he not said, I will go and proclaim him. In verse 25 here in our text in Colossians 1, Paul didn't choose to be a minister. God gave this to him. He said that when he said, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. This is not something Paul set out on. If you remember Paul, he was Saul and he was persecuting the church, having Christians arrested, beaten, thrown into jail, and sometimes murdered. Stephen is, is a great example of that. And when Saul was persecuting the church, Saul thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. So Saul doesn't set out to say, you know what I think I want to do with my life? I want to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, God interrupted Saul and called him to himself and changed his life so dramatically that he had to have a new name. And Saul went from the great persecutor to now the great persecuted for following Christ. Paul doesn't choose this. But why is he doing this? Why did God choose him and, and appoint him to ministry? Well, verse 25 says, to make the word of God fully known. Well, how is Paul to make the word of God fully known? Well, this is a hint here that part of Paul's ministry, a large part of Paul's ministry, was to expose God's word. To preach expositionally. To to literally make the word of God complete. Not adding to, Paul was the writer of half of the New Testament. God worked through him, but, but he would take the word of God and he would expound on it and, and show what it was and explain it further. And really that's how we have most of our New Testament is that Paul took on an expositional preaching ministry. He exposed, he laid out the word of God. Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary, said, people cannot know Christ better without knowing the scriptures. It's a great quote, and that's a great thing for us to understand. We cannot know Christ better unless we dig in to hear. 
unless we start here. God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and he has done it in this book. He's given us the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that because we read the words that is the word of God. So why does God call Paul? He calls him to make the word of God expositionally, to make it complete, but also that he would have this missional ministry, that he wouldn't just take a church in one location and preach from a pulpit there, but he would take the word of God, the gospel, and he would go where it had never been preached before, and he would preach that gospel. In fact, 26 and 27 calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul would go about and he would suffer, he would be arrested, he would be shipwrecked, he would be beaten, he'd be left for dead so many times in order to take the gospel and to preach the gospel, this mystery hidden for so long, but revealed the Christ in you, the hope of glory to his saints. The Jews couldn't conceive of a gospel for Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles really reciprocated that. They didn't like the Jews very much either. And the Jewish people couldn't conceive of a gospel for Gentiles, yet God had told them that this is exactly what would take place. The book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6, God had said through the prophet Isaiah ahead of time, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Paul is the one, one of the ones that God chooses to carry that promise out. That the news of Christ would not simply be good news for a small group of people in one geographical location but that God would make this good news for the world. And he would do so through the preaching of the gospel. In Romans 10 and other places talk about this. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And this is what is going on here with Paul. He's sent to preach the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 18 says, Paul writes there, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father what started as the gospel to the Jews went worldwide as God tore down that wall 
It's not just Paul. It's not just some dusty old character from history that is called by God, given a ministry, to expose the word of God in an international way. It is really every believer. If you're sitting in this room today as a blood-bought, blood-atoned-for Christian, you have been given a similar call. Your call may not be to go across an ocean. It might be. Don't discount that because it just is not on your radar. It's not on your bucket list. It might be that God would call you to go across an ocean to preach the gospel to those who have never heard. And you may sit there today and you may think, but I'm me and you don't know my limitations. I know those. And so God could never do that. Let me remind you of who Paul was when he was Saul and God called him. We're called, all of us, it may not be to go across an ocean to preach the gospel, but we are all called to preach the gospel. Maybe not from a pulpit like I do week in and week out or like Greg does or or others do. But you have a calling also to preach the gospel. It may be distinct from my call in that mine is a vocational call, but yours is still nonetheless a call to take the gospel and proclaim it. Him we proclaim. Paul is largely in this throughout describing his motivation and what he is called to. But notice here, he changes this personal pronoun to this inclusive of the church. Him we proclaim. We've got to preach the gospel both from this pulpit and from your living rooms. We've got to expound the gospel, the word of God, from our Sunday school rooms and also from your break room. Students, we have to preach the gospel both from your youth room as well as from your locker room. We have to preach the gospel and expose what is there in the word of God because how will they know unless they hear? How will they know Christ unless someone explains from God's revelation to them? We must do that expositionally. We must do that missionally. Our proclamation must be interracial and international and cross-cultural. We can no longer leave the preaching of the gospel to the paid professionals. David Platt, who is the president of the International Mission Board, said, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. It's a strong statement, but it is a true statement. How dare we think that the gospel is so precious that we must tuck it away and sit on it. Instead, we must... Give it away, knowing that we'll never lose it. The one who seeks to keep his life will lose it. But the one who gives himself away in the service of following Christ will find that he has life that can never be stripped away from him. J.D. Greer in this book wrote, prevailing against the gates of hell does not mean keeping Satan out of our backyards. 
Instead, it means plundering Satan's kingdom. According to a recent Lifeway research study, in the next seven years, 55,000 churches in the U.S. will close their doors. Think about that. 55,000 churches that started with this this hope of preaching the gospel and seeing men, women, boys, and girls step away from their sin and trust Christ and to follow after him. 55,000 churches that started that way will close their doors for good. According to this research study, the number of those who who attend church in the U.S. on the the weekend will drop from 17% to 14% in seven years. That doesn't seem like a lot, 14 to 7, or 17 to 14, but it is really big. Only 20% of the churches in the U.S. today are growing. The rest are either, 80% of churches are either plateaued or declining, and of those 20% that are growing, only 1% of those are growing by evangelistic growth. In other words, 99% of churches, 80% aren't growing at all. 20% are, but the way they're growing is they're just swapping Christians from this church and this flock to this one. And this happens sometimes because we move This happens sometimes because of where we are in our sanctification and the needs aren't being met. Sometimes this happens because we get angry and disgruntled and we get our feelings hurt and we say, I'm leaving from there. And this must change. God's church will last. God will not let his church go by the wayside, but he doesn't have to do that in America. You hear me? God has blessed America for so many years, and I pray that he still does. But let us not be guilty of mixing up the gospel and the kingdom plan and purpose of God with the United States of America. Let us be a church that says, we will not be content to simply just add members without adding family members to the kingdom. I'm praying this year that we would see so many people converted to Christ. That we might, in our hearts, in my heart, that we might move past this complacency with the status quo. I'll admit to you that I have grown so comfortable In over six years as your pastor, it's so easy to just get comfortable and settle in and just go through the motions And I repent of that. I'm praying that with me and with you that God would so move in our hearts that we would begin to take the gospel outside of these walls to people who right now are unsaved on this side of hell and who still have an opportunity to hear. J.D. Greer in his book talks about how some church members, how some Christians view their church. And he compares this, these views, he uses the metaphor of different uh, ocean ships, boats in, in, on the sea. And he says some Christians see the church as a cruise liner. They, their church offers Christian luxuries for the whole family, such as sports, entertainment, childcare services, business networking, 
Uh, they, they show up at church asking only, can this church improve my religious quality of life? Does it have a good family ministries facilities? Does the pastor preach funny and time-conscious messages that meet my felt needs? Do I like the music? If their church ever ceases to cater to their preferences, well, there are plenty of other churches in the harbor. Other Christians view their church not as a cruise liner, but they believe their church is more like a battleship. The church is made for mission, and its success should be seen in how loudly and how dramatically it fights the mission. This is certainly better than the cruise liner view, J.D. says. However, it implies that it is the church institution that is to do most of the fighting. The role of church members is to pay the pastor, to, to, to find the targets and to fire the guns each week as they gather to watch. They see the programs, services, and ministries of the church as the primary instruments of mission. But then there is a third. And J.D. points out that there is a better metaphor than the cruise liner or the battleship. And he says the better metaphor is the aircraft carrier. And I think he's right. And hear this out. Like battleships, they engage in battle, but not in the same way. Aircraft carriers equip planes to carry the battle elsewhere. The last place that an aircraft carrier wants to find itself engaged in battle is on its own deck. The goal is to keep the battle as far away from the aircraft carrier as possible. And I believe the Bible teaches that this is a far better way of seeing the church. That we're we're not here to simply just provide all sorts of luxuries for you. We're not here to, to entertain you as we fight the battle and you watch. According to Ephesians 4, God has given the church pastors and elders in order to equip its members for the work of ministry. That we might be like this aircraft carrier and not that I'm not engaged in taking the the mission but that we might equip you and call you to leave this deck and to go out into your workplace, to go out into your neighborhoods, to go out into your schools, to go out into the gyms where you work out and and all the social places, social media and all these things, and we might send you out to engage in this mission and not to do so in such a way that we simply just fire shots across but that we might come in close and be engaged with the people not trying to alienate ourselves with the gospel not trying to make the gospel more offensive than it is it's offensive enough as it is but that we might come in close and say Bible, God, says that all have sinned and all fall short of his glory. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we might walk with people through their questions. This is what life groups is really all about. We want one another to grow in Christ, but we also want it to be a place where you might be able to bring a coworker 
or a classmate, that they might come into a safer place where they can see believers, Christians, wrestling and struggling. And they might, instead of being on the outside saying, all Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites, they might come in and see Christians saying, I know I'm a hypocrite, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I need Christ every single day of my life. And they might have questions answered and might be moved all the more closely to to Jesus. J.D. Greer goes on and he says, churches that want to prevail against the gates of hell must learn to see themselves like aircraft carriers, not like battleships and certainly not like cruise liners. Members need to learn to share the gospel without the help of the pastor in the community and start ministries and Bible studies in places without them. Churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. As our nation, as the world walks further and further away from Christianity or from any religion whatsoever, we can count on fewer and fewer people who are lost to walk through these doors. But they must live out there. They must go to work. They must go to school. They must do these things. And you and I are among them. So let us be sent Christ we must proclaim. Also in verse 28, I spent so much time on that first hymn we proclaim, but I want to finish out 28 through 29 just briefly. I won't spend a whole lot of time there, but he goes on and he says, we must warn everyone and we must teach everyone. This is the work of discipleship once a person comes to Christ. It's not over once a person says, I admit that I'm a sinner, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm trusting Christ, and they are converted. It's not over once they follow Christ in believer's baptism. Then the work really begins. The work begins when we come alongside them and warn them. Lana and I had the privilege last night of going to um, um, North Greenville University and their drama department uh, performing um, C.S. Lewis's uh, Shadowlands, and Elijah was in that, J.J. was in that. Incredible, incredible. You didn't get to see it. It's over now. And you just missed out if, if you didn't get to see it. It was really good. But on the way home, driving home from North Greenville, 10, 15 at night, it's dark outside. We're on Highway 253, little country road. I'm driving down through there, and all of a sudden, in my headlights, coming the other direction, is a guy on a hoverboard. Going down 253 on a hoverboard. That guy needs somebody to warn him, right? That guy needs somebody to get him into a life group because if not, he's going to wind up in a dead group, right? I mean, he needs some, somebody to come alongside him and say, there's some activity you're engaging in that is not very smart. Then he needs somebody to come alongside him and teach him. We are to warn and correct and admonish and then teach and fill in that void. If, if all we ever do, this is the kind of church that I grew up in, was the, the church that always warned. And I knew more about the, what we were against than I ever knew what we were for. If all we do is warn without teaching, it's the equivalent of spanking your child without telling them why. 
It's the equivalent of a coach who's always yelling at a player for doing the wrong thing, but never instructing them on how to do it the right way. We warn everyone and we teach everyone. We were never called to simply seek converts. We were called to make disciples. And we do so. We warn everyone and we teach everyone, according to the text, with all wisdom. Paul later in in 2 Timothy wrote to Timothy, his protege, his son in the ministry, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're not starting life groups to keep guys on hoverboards safe on 253. We are starting life groups to train and admonish with all the wisdom of God men and women so that they might be complete, equipped for every good work. Also there in 28, he says, we, we may, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's great joy was to present to Christ believers who had reached their maximum earthly potential. Uh, in, in Thessalonians, he's talking to the Thessalonians there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19 to 20, and he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul realizes that there will come a day when he will stand before God and he will present to God those whom he has pointed toward Christ and poured his life into and warned and taught. And I can think of no greater joy than that. Than one day to stand before God and not brag about the size of my bank account or brag about my house or Show him a bunch of pictures of my kids. I can think of no greater joy than to stand before God and say, God, for your glory. God, I did all I could to warn and to teach, not so that I might get praised, but God, so that you might be glorified in them. You ever given somebody a gift that was the perfect gift and you watched their face as they opened it and it brought such joy to their heart? It's the picture here of when we stand in heaven before Christ and we present to him those that we've poured our lives into and led to him and pointed to him. This will call for this, this will call for rejoicing in suffering. This is what Paul started out with in verse 24. He rejoiced in his suffering for their sake. This will call for us to rejoice in suffering for one another's sake. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen to this. 
If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We will have to be willing to say, I will gladly be afflicted and I will gladly suffer in ways that are inconvenient to me at times for the sake of X, Y, and Z that they might come to the Lord, that they might follow him. This will also call for hard work. In verse 29, Paul finishes out and he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil here is a word that means uh, it's working, it's, it's work that leaves a person completely exhausted. It's, it's a word that means like, like he took a beating. You ever worked so hard you felt like you've been beat up? I have. That's what he's talking about here. You work so hard, you struggle. The word, same word I used a couple weeks ago, it's the word agon. It's, it's where we get our word agony. That we work to the point of exhaustion. I, I can't help but to think of my grandfather. My grandfather, I've, I say this every time I talk about my grandfather, he's the most godly man I've ever known in my life. Um, the last time we were home at Christmas, my grandfather came up to me in the living room before he was leaving, and he said, well, it was nice to meet you. grandfather didn't know who I was. But God only knows the number of people that have been led to Christ, pointed that way. My grandfather in his 90s and still wanting to go and counsel in the response room at a youth conference. John Piper in in a book called Don't Waste Your Life wrote, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Some of you, he said, will die in the service of Christ. That will not be a tragedy. Treasuring life above Christ is a tragedy. Let's pray together. God, for your glory and your glory alone. I stand in this place week in and week out. And God, I confess to you that there have been times when it's not been for your glory. Where I have cared way too much, God, about whether I had it succinct and 
buttoned up nicely. I've cared way too much, God, about what others might think of me when I'm through. And God, I confess that to you, and God, I repent. God, I pray that in my own life and in the lives of those who make up this faith family, God, that you might, at the risk of sounding cliche, God, set our hearts on fire with this call to make disciples. God, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, give us the endurance for it, the faith to believe in the middle of it, that there is nothing that we will ever give up here that will be greater than what we will gain in you. God, move among us, call us. Teach us that the only purpose that is not wasted is when we use our lives to make much of you and to make others glad in you. God, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. As God has spoken to you, as he's led, I want you to respond. Say yes to him. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to go to the prayer room and pray with someone else. If you'd like to come and speak with me, I'll be here on the front row. Whatever it is, in this moment, in this moment, the Bible teaches that Satan is like that bird that sort of swoops in to take away the seed of the word before it can take root in your heart. In this moment, follow Christ. Trust him to be what you need to make good on that commitment. You respond as God leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.